Now you shouldn't um, fall into what he calls the material trap. That is that you should really just focus on being yourself first off and that audiences um, identify with and, and enjoy, will enjoy you more just as a funny person then they will be concerned with the fact that your jokes aren't clever. And- Welcome, everyone, to uh, the 13th episode of the MarkCast podcast. I'm Mark Jorgensen, host and creator of this podcast. That is Steve Brickman, an experienced comedian, explaining to me what makes good comedy. Uh, so we get into that and a whole lot more in my conversation with Steve Brickman. Uh, Steve Brickman is a guy that I met when I lived up in Boston, uh, he tells about his career where he started doing stand-up comedy in Massachusetts. Uh, he moved to L.A. and then worked uh, for a number of years at the Lampoon magazine, uh, right as it was switching into the digital format. Uh, he has a lot of funny stories about L.A., a lot of funny stories about comedy, and uh, just life in general. So uh, let's get right to it. So, Steve, how's it going? How's it going today? It's good. Good, Mark. How are you doing? Good, good. So I'm, I'm glad you could uh, were able to arrange this uh, podcast episode. Um, I just, I just want to tell everyone listening, you know, that we met um, a few years ago when I lived in Boston for a while, and uh, you're from Boston. Correct. And uh, I think one of the things that you always used to mention to people, um, it means you're a funny guy, and you've done a lot of stand-up comedy. In your career, uh, but also that you worked at the Lampoon uh, for about ten years in Los Angeles, right? That's right. Yeah, the National Lampoon. I thought I think I was there for ten years. I think I was there for about maybe five or six. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then they laid everybody off when they ran out of money. So you were there right at the tail end of the Lampoon. It was definitely the tail end. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Um, they survived a couple of years beyond, but like. If you go to the website today, it's like there's nothing there. It's kind of unfortunate. It's unfortunate because they were at one point they were they were like the you know comedy market leader in the U.S. You know in the seventies. Um, so it was it was Lampoon magazine, and then did they own Mad Magazine or did they have any? No, they're it? not affiliated at all. They came out of the Harvard Lampoon. Harvard Lampoon. Um, and uh, and then they spawned uh, Saturday Night Live from there, and of course all the movies, Animal House, and the Vacation movies. And and when I was there, we just did um, the uh, the Van Wilder, the first Van Wilder movie, which we were the writers weren't super like psyched about it, but we didn't write it, but we did a lot of marketing around it. We did some punch up on it, I think. Um, How did it do? The movie did it do pretty well. It no, it didn't do well at all, and the, <laughs> and the critics panned it. But I think that time has been good to the Van Wilder movie. I think it's held up as being a sophomore uh, gross out. Uh, you know, Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds' career, I think, managed to pull the the movie out of the quagmire and elevate it um, a little bit. And also, uh, what's his name, Kumar. Oh, yeah, yeah, Kumar. Yeah, those guys became really famous, I think, after that movie, or maybe they already were, but yeah, I think they became pretty huge afterwards, right? They got huge, yeah. They were just sort of coming into their own. 
point. So how did you? So okay. So you went. You went to college um, in Massachusetts, right? Like, yeah, right. UMass, UMass Amherst. And then you started getting into like writing, and uh, what would you study? Did you study creative writing or English, or what? You... I did. Yeah, I was an English major out there, and uh, another comic who you may have heard of, this guy Eugene Merman, uh-huh. um, was at Hampshire College the same time I was actually in grad school. And he, uh, actually, we're both from Lexington as well, Lexington High. And uh, he's a few years behind me. I'm, I'm a lot older than he is. So I was in grad school at the time. But he started doing like an open mic um, at Hampshire College. And I think that's when I was first like, hey, you know, I think I need to give this a try too. And then we wound up doing a lot of stand-up together out in Western Mass, and um, I opened up for his final exam at Hampshire College, <laughs> Yeah, which is a weird thing to yeah. say, but I did about 40 minutes. And uh, his comedy career has gone a lot better than mine has. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? Oh, he was definitely more focused. He, he is an amazing uh, self-promoter, Yeah, like even way back then. So he was able to really get his name out there. And I was more interested in just being uh, lazy and, and not doing much of anything. So, you know, that apparently that works, uh, working hard. Well, uh, okay, but you, you weren't, must have been not too lazy because so, uh, I mean, you end up winding up at the, uh, at the Lampoon, right? So that took some work, right? I got the Lampoon gig, and then at the end of that, there were a few... Uh, I was up for a, a bunch of different jobs. I mean, I wound up doing a little bit of TV work here and there in L.A. Yeah. And then at, at some point, my wife was like, you know, I want to have some kids and I don't want to have them in L.A. So let's get the hell out of here. But and, oh, Well, back back up. So you, you went to L.A. right after college, right? No, I well, right after grad school. Right after grad school. Yeah. So you just went to L.A. and things just kind of like lined up pretty well when you got there, right? They did, yeah. I found that being from Boston helped a lot because, um, you know, there are a lot of Boston comics out there, a lot of new Boston comics and a lot of older Boston comics. And the older crowd was just really super supportive of the new blood coming in. Um, You know, guys like um, Tom Kenny, who does like every voice on Nickelodeon, and um, Bobcat Goldthwait and Martin Olsen. Yeah. Um, those guys really helped me out a lot when I got out there. Tony V is another guy. Um, I wound up working on uh, Bobcat's. It was a, it was a show called Bobcat's Big Ass Show. Yeah, and I worked on that for a little bit until that got canceled. <laughs> uh, uh, did some stuff for the Food Network. Actually, it, yeah. you know, L.A. is such a weird place. I wound up um, because my boss at the Lampoon was friends with Mark Price. He actually managed Mark Price. And Mark Price was the neighbor on Family Ties. Yeah. Skippy. It was yeah. Skippy. Remember that guy? Skippy, yeah. So then Mark Price got me a gig working on uh, doing a hidden camera show for the Food Network. Like, it's just weird how things kind of work out once you're out there and you, you meet people. Wow, hidden camera. So when was it? Was that like early 90s then when like the whole hidden camera thing was kind of like a new, kind of a new thing? Like the whole, who's... Y- yeah, I mean, I don't know how new it was because Alan Funt, you know, kind of candid camera has been around since like the the 60s, I think. Oh, but, okay, okay. But, but, but the... The Food Network was still like in its infancy, so nobody was watching it yet. 
Yeah. That's before they figured out, you know, the whole food porn angle oh, yeah. before that. So they were still trying to, you know, be creative. And uh, and this hidden camera thing was really silly. So you knew Bobcat and Gold- Goldweight pretty well then? Or, or he's just kind of like another guy in the in the Boston crowd in L.A.? Um, not pretty well, but when I got out there, um, I, I was introduced to him through, I think I'm pretty sure it was through Martin Olson. Um, and then, uh, just wound up, he needed people on, on the big ass show to write jokes and to test out the game. So, yeah. uh, that's how that happened. He's I wound up doing a little work for, uh, uh, Ben Stein, Okay, yeah, 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 Ben Stein. He's the economist yeah. guy or whatever, the mathematician guy, right? Yeah, there was a show called... He was actually a Nixon speechwriter in, like, the 60s. There was a show called Turn Ben Stein On really early on that I did, like, a couple of spots for. Yeah. Um, he he likes doing really depressing... Pe- I mean, <laughs> I've read, like, some of his blog posts, like, I guess more recently, and he likes just doing really depressing things about, like, oh, we're all doomed and everything yeah. like that. Yeah, <laughs> was he always like that? His shtick. Yeah. A, was he always like that? Like, like that was his whole thing from whatever. Yeah, whenever. Yeah, he was generally like that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bobcat, he still he still like makes movies. I think he's uh, one of the producers on um, the show Marin, the Mark Marin show. Yeah, uh, which is awesome. He yeah. also just produced um, a documentary about a great Boston comedian, Barry Crimmins, who's. Uh, considered by many to be sort of the founding father of Boston comedy. Mm. Um, so check him out, Barry Crimmins. And um, and the, the documentary is all about Crimmins' life um, and his sort of uh, childhood abuse early on. So it's, you know, it's funny and it's sad. It's an amazing movie. Wait, I think I've heard about this. It, it already came out, right? And Yeah. Um, it's... I no, I, th- I think I know. I remember hearing about this actually uh, a little while ago. Yeah, so yeah, Bobcat. He also did one of the last movies that Robin Williams did actually. I think a few years ago, right? World's Greatest Dad. That's, yeah, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, the- it did horribly. I think at the box office. <laughs> oh really? It's a decent movie though. I, I didn't think it was that bad. I thought it was all right. It's kind of a darker movie, but yeah. um, the Crimmins movie is called uh, Call Me Lucky. Call Me Lucky. Yeah. Okay. Um, I so you you also told me that um, one of these stories I think you said when I was living in Boston and we worked together um, you you actually told me that um, when you were at the Lampoon um, things were kind of had calmed down a little bit from the more crazier times before and one day your boss came in and he said hey what's going on guys um, I, I don't smell I used to smell pot smoke a lot more often around here you know I, I don't smell as much can you guys you know. You know, smoke some more pot or something? To get more yeah, he didn't more? say it like that. Okay, okay. But here's, okay. I'll tell you the story. <laughs> okay. Uh, this went, it, definitely we were we were a pretty clean group of writers. And uh, one day my, my boss, who was also the the uh, editor-in-chief or whatever of the, of the Lampoon at the time, this guy Scott Rubin, he, he yelled at us for not bringing weed to, to the office. <laughs> yeah. He said, like, he's like, back in the 70s, you'd open the door to the writing room and a, and a, just a cloud of smoke would just billow out. <laughs> Which I'm sure is how it was. Yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. it was just the writer's yeah, room yeah, either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Entire office. <laughs> so um, did you guys follow through on that? Did you guys uh, deliver when he was on his complaints? Or you guys just going to say, ah, whatever, I'm just going to keep going about your work? 
It was kind of a weird scene. Uh, <laughs> we were on the tenth floor of like a high rise on Wilshire Boulevard in Westwood at that time. They've since moved to Sunset, but this was before before that. And like we were like two floors down from the Bangladeshi embassy. Yeah. I remember. Uh, so it was always. I don't know. It was weird. There were always like terrorist threats in the building and stuff. Like, it's a very strange work environment. Um, so it was clearly it was on its last legs at that point. I think. Um, so where did everyone end up going after the lampoon? I guess so. After things ended there, did everyone just kind of start doing their own you know, TV? And I guess you were doing a lot of stand up too. So you kind of just started doing more stand up after that. What, what was your kind of life? Yeah. After well. I kind of just went back to trying to get work (laughs) anywhere. And then, uh, but, you know. You you were married at this time, right, too? You were already married? Yeah. Okay, okay. It wasn't long after that that we left L.A. Um, The other writers are sort of all spread out in L.A. Sean Crespo's in New York. He's one of the writers. Mason Brown is in. uh, He's still still in Hollywood. Um, He wound up doing a lot of reality show stuff, like, um, which is mostly, they call it writing, but it's really mostly video editing um, to create gags and stuff. Um, and uh, Joe Osterley, who is the art director, yeah, he worked on one of those weird, weird books. He worked on a, like a weird Hollywood, yeah, okay, edition, yeah. And he's now he's now art director for a like a sex toy company. Not so not a big change, right? From a lampoon, right? That is not a big change at all. <laughs> that is almost no change. <laughs> for him. Yeah. So um so you left LA um I guess not too long, like a, a couple of years after that or something. Um and that was because your wife uh mostly just wanted to raise you guys wanted to raise kids. And uh, Yeah. Where did you go after that? We wound up coming back to Boston. Um, you know, my parents are here, and so good to be around the grandparents when you have kids. Uh, since then, um, I, I guess you've still done stand-up kind of consistently, though, right? You started doing stand-up in Boston, and you, you did it pretty regularly throughout. What what were some of the, the highlights, I guess, of doing stand-up or, you know, over the years? I guess, how did you first get into stand-up? You said you just started doing it with your friend in, in grad school, and then was that it? Or did you, I mean, did something compel you to do that? Or was that just kind of because you were a writer, a comedic writer, you felt there was a need to also do stand-up? Well, I think the comedy was- started when I was, I actually went to UMass for undergrad and grad school. When yeah. I was an undergrad, um, I work. I put together a, a humor newspaper called Zoo News that maybe somebody listening might remember yeah uh, we had a pretty wide circulation and that's that's where it, that's where it all started for me and then um what what did you guys write what was it what was the style was it kind uh, of like a lot it was of very college? lampoon style it was like we would just make fun of everybody and everything okay, okay. so that was like there's a similar rule at the lampoon we don't have a specific political agenda or anything we just make fun of everything that's we find ridiculous and who were your readers? I mean, kind of like, you know, like the students that were kind of like a little bit like outsiders that just wanted, or, or was it sort of everyone that just wanted to laugh at something or what was, what was kind of your uh, typical audience? Well, we had a lot of, we had a lot of enemies when okay. we were doing it. <laughs> okay. It, Cause you know, Western mass is like sort of hyper liberal 
uh, you know, college town. There's and UMass is UMass was would, would accept Zoo News without any hiccups. You know, they were a bunch of just beer beer guzzling, you know, crazies. Yeah. But you know, you look at like um, Hampshire College, Mount Holyoke, and uh, Williams and Mary, a little more conservative and. Some of the stuff that we wrote, they weren't. It was. It's funny because we managed to offend everybody equally. <laughs> I think so. Whether you were conservative, you'd find reasons to hate us, or if you were, if you were very liberal, you'd find other reasons to hate us. So, who, who did you guys take on? I mean, did you have like a common target that you guys would, would you know, like the school administration or? Just... Yeah, we actually did. We actually at one point uh, we took on the chancellor. For a while, and I don't even remember. I don't even think there was like a real reason. We just thought it would be funny if we just attacked yeah. the most powerful person yeah. at the yeah. at the college. Yeah. And uh, yeah. well, there there was this one guy. I don't even remember his name, but I remember he was running for class president, and we just made fun of the fact that anybody would <laughs> want to run for class president. So did he win? So he took a lot of grief from us. Did no, he wound up. I'm pretty sure he wound up losing anyway. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I could look it up. Yeah. I actually have the issues around here somewhere. Okay. Well, cool. So you did that. Um, so I guess it was it was reason it was fairly successful, right? At least people were reading you and talking about you. you well, I'll influence. tell you the best thing about doing it. Uh, it paid for like all of our pizza. Yeah. For one thing, I there mean, you like go. you know, we had there were a lot of people. We had a lot of advertisers. Because yeah. there wasn't a lot out there. You didn't have the internet. Yeah. Uh, so it was like there wasn't a lot of places to, to advertise, especially out in Western Mass. So we did very well with advertising. So like all of our, you know, all of our date nights were paid for and, and everything like that. We'd, we did a lot of, we did a lot in trade stuff. So. Yeah. Cool. So. Good way um, to survive. In college, if you're broke, yeah. I don't know if that works anymore. Probably not. You probably have to have like a social media website or something at this point. Well, when I was in t- uh, college yeah, about 10 years ago, uh, my roommate started a, a magazine. And um, it, it was a serious like news source, um, which, but they had one section that was all, jo- uh, all jokes. And it was, so it was called The Voice. And then that one section was called The Cracked Voice which I wrote a few pieces for. But I was with him when he was doing the advertising, and um, he did really well on the advertising, at least enough to pay for all, like, the publication and pay for, you know, like you're saying, you get a little extra. So I, I don't think, you know, nobody really, I don't think he paid rent for with it, but, you know, it paid for itself and, uh, you know, got some good interviews and it was a good experience. I mean, I mean, I think, but that was 10 years ago. I mean, but even at that point, the internet was really, I mean, it was already fully there. People were demand. people just weren't li- really going to paper anymore. So, um, the days yeah. were clearly numbered on that. I mean, I'm literally talking about like, uh, 89 to 90. So oh, okay. that was like 26 years ago. And then I actually revived it when I, when I went back to grad school and that was in like, uh, uh, 04, but that's still 12 years ago. So you went, you went back to grad school. Yeah. I went back to UMass for, for grad school. I got an MFA in fiction. How was that? It was great. I, I really, I love UMass. I love, I love taking advantage of the public school system and <laughs> UMass was just awesome. I mean, the professors were incredible. Was it I can't, what? I don't have a bad thing to say about it, except that at, when I went there as an undergrad, the kids were insane. 
<laughs> insane in what way they just like the party or they were just kind of yeah okay was, yeah i mean at that time it was called zoom ass and that's where we got zoo news oh. um and you know like there were there was a rumor that somebody had pushed a cow off of one of the towers off the like in southwest one of the at the roof of one of the towers and people you know assumed that it was true that somebody actually had pushed a cow the story was that they pushed the cow up the stairs, like 25 flights of stairs. Wow. And then pushed the cow off of the roof. And it seemed entirely <laughs> plausible at the time, A, because that's kind of yeah. how UMass was, and B, there were a lot of cows around. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. it was like an, an urban legend. Oh, wow. But there was a kid, there was a kid that, that um, died... Uh, elevators, what they called elevator surfing. I don't know if it's a you know official sport or anything, but he was like jumping from one elevator to. He was on top of an elevator in one of the Southwest Towers. That's where most of the, the shenanigans went down. It was on top of one of the elevators, and he tried to jump to the other elevator. Oh, uh, you know which they don't really they don't really advise that. <laughs> General. I don't, don't, I don't even know how he got on top of an elevator, but this was an absolutely true story. I was yeah. there when it happened, and he died, and we were doing wow. Zoo News, and we were upset because we couldn't make fun of it because he was dead. And oh, wait, so you saw it happen? Like you saw him fall, or you you just were there and you just afterwards saw it or whatever? No, we didn't. I didn't see it happen. Oh, but. okay, okay, but you okay? You were at the school and you knew. Okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Wow, um, yeah, it, was, it was upsetting. That's uh, that's pretty horrible. Um, and uh, so you went. So you, you did grad school like right after undergrad, and then so about ten years or so passes, uh, or ten or fifteen years, and then you go back and get another grad, like, graduate degree in fiction. And then I guess your goal was to you know, to do just be a writer, you know, write books and produce like literature. Or what's what was kind of your your aim? I, you know, at the time. Um I thought that I would probably wind up writing a novel or two and teaching. Yeah. I think that's, and, uh, you know, life has a way of changing things around. I'm now just, you know, more focused on technology. I still try to write whenever I can and, and do stand-up when I can. I'm still getting out there, um, you know, a couple times a month, so. Uh, so you've said that a lot of your uh, friends that you know um, did stand up. A bunch of them have become you know pretty kind of fa- pretty famous, right? Um, do, do you? How does that change your relationship with them? I mean, do you, do you stay in contact with them pretty well, or is it? What is it uh, like? Yeah, I do, I stay in contact with them, and I try to send them jokes when I can here and there. I don't think it's really changed much of anything. I have friends that are writing for, uh, you know, Jimmy Kimmel and. Um, a number of other shows uh, and a bunch of friends who are stand up. I got, you know, friends who are writing for Conan and, um, and Kimmel and who else? I, hold on a second. Let's see. On Fallon. I have a couple of friends on Fallon. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a, the bummer is like, the should I have stayed in LA kind of question, you know, or had oh. I stayed in LA, would I be writing for a show right now? Um, and you told me like once in a while you get like a check for like 50 bucks or something, uh, from a joke that 
you know, maybe you submit it and then they end up using it on the Tonight Show or something. And, uh, you know, every once in a while you get some cash from that, right? Yeah, that's always nice. And I've even gotten stranger things than that. Like I've gotten letters, checks for shows I didn't write for. <laughs> but because, because I, like, submitted a writing packet. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, there were jokes in the writing packet. They had to compensate for those too. I don't know, really but that happens as well. What would you say makes like a good stand-up act? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Um, first of all, there's this great Woody Allen quote where he talks about how you shouldn't um, fall into what he calls the material trap. That is that you should really just focus on being yourself first off and that audiences um, identify with and and enjoy, will enjoy you more just as a funny person than they will be concerned with the fact that your jokes aren't clever enough and so forth. So, you know, if you can go on stage and be likable, um, you'll do much better with an audience. Uh, also... It's sort of important to assume the, the, the right posture as a comic. Like, uh, everybody, like everybody loves an underdog, right? So when you, in your material, I think it's better to be like a champion of the underclass. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's much, it's much more effective to make fun of those in power than to, than to get up there and sort of be super confident and act like, you know, and sort of assume the posture of somebody who is in power and then make fun of the downtrodden, um, so to speak. So, uh, and the other thing is, you know, uh, it's kind of a, it's a different environment than it was when, when I was doing more stand up, you know, like 15 years ago. The audiences are way more sensitive than they used to be, even in comedy clubs where you'd think that you could just let loose. Um, so you have to be pretty careful these days. But I've I mean, I've always my general rule was I don't I don't make fun of people who can't defend themselves. You know, like I don't I don't make retarded jokes. Um, I'm not going to make like AIDS jokes and things like that. I mean, um you can, if you're going to do like an AIDS joke, make sure that the it's all about the context. That is that you're not making fun of people with AIDS or people with cancer or something like that, but you're making fun of something around the illness or the disease. You're making fun of like public, the public reaction to the disease, or you're making fun of the way the media treats the disease. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of what you're saying about like, you know, like if you have power and you're kind of just beating up, like you're the, I mean, that makes you the bully. You know, that's like right. the, the least funny thing out there. Exactly. Uh, but if you're a weak guy and you're kind of doing something funny and kind of saying how, you know, this, whoever's in power, you know, they're, they're kind of off or something's wrong with them that, you know, maybe no one says to them directly because everyone's kind of afraid of them or whatever. I, I think that, you know, that's kind of at the root of a lot of comedy. You don't want to be, I wouldn't use the word weak. Okay. You don't want to come from a, a position of weakness, but you do want to be self-deprecating. Okay, yeah. You know, that's really important, and you do want to show that you don't take yourself seriously. Um, another approach 
is if you're gonna if you wanna if you're more of like a sort of like a brass and like outspoken com- comedian, you know, which there are millions of them. Yeah. Um, I find that it it helps to go over the top that way, and I think this is what most comics do, with the exception of a guy like uh, of what's his name, uh, Black. Uh, Jack Black. No, not Jack Black. The other Black. Lewis Black. Lewis Black. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Lewis Black. Lewis Black can get away with these, you know, wild rants because he's amazing. But I find that if you're going to, like, I used to do anti-pregnancy rants. Yeah. I had, like, ten minutes on my wife's pregnancy. But the gag was that I was, the persona that I adopted, that guy was such an asshole that he clearly was just sort of spouting off this, like, totally incorrect nonsense about pregnancy and in that respect it worked because i'm you know everybody can get behind laughing at this comedian who's such a such a you know wrong-headed douchebag talking about his pregnant wife you know and i would say things like you know my wife you know now that she's pregnant she's got a lot of got a lot of gas happening you know she, she, she burps a lot she farts a lot and i tell her honey you got to be careful cuz if you if you burp and you fart at the same time the baby can explode <laughs> oh, and that's a known fact so and i would you know phrase things like that that were obviously just nonsensical and people would get behind it so um yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying too, um, it really gets at the core of a lot of like a lot of politics um, today. And uh, one reason that comedy has changed is because you know the politics and the values uh, of society has changed a bit. Um, you know, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I think a lot of this whole kind of like if you're someone powerful, you know, beating up on someone weak. You know, it, kind of regardless, if you're like a powerful politician, be, you know, and, and just kind of true. Cause like the, a lot of the same social dynamics, you know, in, that are active in comedy are the same things that are active in every part of society, in, including political rhetoric and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, I think it's like you said earlier, uh, you know, it's it's a it's another form of bullying. And I think that people get who get behind uh, you know, whether it's a political leader or a comedian who is just sort of spouting off against a certain group or groups of people or, or really just trying to belittle others. It's, it's, uh, it shows their own weakness, I think. Yeah. So there's this new thing that's happening on college campuses are becoming especially, uh, sort of strange these days. I mean, when we were in school, there was a lot of talk about um, political correctness and inclusiveness and multiculturalism and all that. But um, and that was cool, and people even made fun of it then, which was which was good that you were still allowed to make fun of it right. at the same time that it was sort of being developed. But now there's this new movement, and I don't even know where where it sort of evolved from. But there's this idea that. Um, being exposed to different ideas can actually be harmful, uh, so or wow. like psychologically painful, wow. um, which is actually wrong. It goes against <laughs> it, it's, it goes against everything that like you know psychiatry says that when you so let me just try let me give an example. So they're saying that let let's say that somebody has been raped, right? So right. now they're saying that okay, well. 
that person needs to be um, sheltered from discussions of rape or or instances of rape in novels. And so now we need these things called trigger warnings to say like, you know, hey, trigger warning, there's going to be some rape in this, in this book or whatever. Uh, when, when psychology says that, that's actually wrong, we need to expose those sort of victims um, more often to yeah. these ideas to actually sort of help them work it through, you yeah. know. I hear a lot about triggers. I mean, I think definitely like that. So, the, but the trigger warnings—I I didn't hear as much about that specifically. But um, and so, in, in doing all this um, stand-up, I mean, what, what what do you think um, about Donald Trump? How do you explain Donald Trump in terms of like you know, at times he could, he's kind of like, he's the bully, right? But well, at t- times he's kind of the to champion explain. too, right? Sometimes he's the bully, sometimes he's the champion. I, I don't know what what's. Because he's beating up also, like he criticizes the rich, but he also kind of beats up on very weak people as well. It's kind of like he's he's kind of switching back and forth. It seems like to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very easy to explain his success. Um, he's a celebrity, first of all, and America loves a celebrity. Yeah, they love to get they love to go see a celebrity perform. Right. In this right. case, give a speech. Right. And know, uh, he's wildly entertaining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's 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 not too many dull moments. I mean, especially if you compare him to other politicians, um, who can be very dull and very like fake. You know, you know he he's very enter- very entertaining uh, comparatively. I think. Yeah, and uh, I have a friend who who sort of summarized his success in that he was very early on. What what Trump did was he classified all of his you know competitors or whatever. Um, with a, he gave them each sort of like a, a, a label very early on. Right. So that each one, so then he could just like refer to that label and everybody would know, oh yeah, that guy is the weakling or whatever. <laughs> yeah, what he did to Jeb Bush uh, was just uh, almost perfect in terms of execution. He just, he, he's like, yeah, Jeb Bush, he's real low energy. He's real, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And just... It really got under Jeb Bush's skin, and uh, for I think everybody kind of thinks of Jeb Bush. That, that affected almost how most people view Jeb Bush. I think. Yeah, exactly. It gave everybody this very, very short label that was easy to remember, you know. So that it was just brilliant. I mean, he's he's. If you listen to him give speeches, either he never really says anything. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's not a lot. Um, and well, I mean, especially, well, now, kind of, you, you know, I remember talking to you, kind of saying like, like Obama is probably the one of the least funny presidents in, in or at least to make fun of, you know, from like a, an SNL perspective or an impersonation uh, characterization. He's really not that funny um, compared to, you know, his predecessor, you know, compared to W. Bush or compared to Bill Clinton or Reagan. You know, he's really like probably one of the least funny presidents we've had in a while and, and from that perspective. But if Trump were to be the nominee and if maybe Bernie Sanders might be the nominee, which is there's a possibility, I think that would be one of the funniest you know, <laughs> seasons we'd have to actually have really funny candidates in, in a while, right? I, I don't, I don't know what yeah. your take is on that. What? I mean, by funny you mean candidates who are easily made fun of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Someone who you know you can do an SNL you know bit where you know they you know whatever make fun of him doing an impersonation. Yeah. Impersonation. 
Because I think personally, Obama's like comedic delivery is actually really good. <laughs> oh, well, I think no, no, he does pretty but, well on that front. I'm, I'm sorry, just like as far as like making fun of them, he, yeah. he's not as funny. That's yeah, it's harder to make fun of him because he's he's funny himself. I think whereas uh, I mean, I think I've heard that you know W was funny uh, off camera and charming. I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard um, that as well. Yeah. But very easy to, very easy definitely to make fun of him. What was the golden age for you? I mean, was Bill Clinton really kind of the golden age as far as like comic, um, you know, material to, to draw from? Well, it became hack pretty quickly. That was the only problem with, with Clinton. I mean, you know, oh. if you remember, the, the, there was like the fast food thing. Yeah. And then, of course, that was enough material for everybody and everybody sort of worked it into the ground and then it became unfunny oh. um well <laughs> so uh, and then we put it on the cover of one of our books and i was really pissed about that but oh really <laughs> which one of your old lampoon books you mean yeah it's a lampoon it was a lampoon um collection which is too bad because the book itself is really good it's um what was it called? The Big Book of Love. The love was the theme, but we used a lot of old stuff from the old magazine. Uh-huh. So it's this really cool collection of old and new lampoon pieces, and the new stuff was good too. And then they ruined it by putting a horrible, horrible cover on it. <laughs> Just ruined it. You've started your own business, um, and like I've had a lot of people that I've interviewed for this podcast um, that have started their own business or doing their own business. Um, what has been one of the main struggles, I guess, for you um, in having your own business? And, and what's been more rewarding or about it? Um, well, I, my wife and I had our own uh, design company for about 10 years called Got Your Nose. Yeah. Um, being your own boss is amazing. Um, making your own hours and so forth and working, working on the couch all days. It doesn't suck either. Yeah. Uh, and having full creative control over projects. But yeah, so when I was at the Lampoon, our main focus was the website. Yeah. So, and this was really early on. So we were, and I kept saying, you know, let's just do like what the onion is doing. Let's just do more text, text and, and pictures and keep it real simple so everybody can, can see it. But, uh, my boss was really hot on the idea of pushing the technological limits of the internet, which at the time weren't, weren't very high, you know? Yeah. So we would do things like we would mix real media with, like, uh, flash. We would animate things that way. We'd have, like, still images that would start animating. And when we did it, it seemed cool. And now you look back and you're like, yeah, I see that every day on my phone. <laughs> Was it successful, was that? Or, or did it just, like, chew up a lot of bandwidth and just people, you know, couldn't really watch it I, on their computer? Yeah, I would say it's a recipe for how not to run a comedy <laughs> website in the in the late 90s. Yeah. Because uh, uh, most people no, weren't on broadband at the time. Most people were on dial-up. And we got a lot of uh, email and phone calls from people who were, like, on AOL, that's how long ago this was. A lot of people were still on AOL, and they couldn't really see anything at all in their crappy AOL browser that they had. You know, like Flash didn't work and all this stuff. 
one of the sections that I edited for the site was called True Facts, and that was a section that got carried over from the old magazine. And that was actually the most popular section on the website, and it was precisely because all it was was a picture or two and a couple of captions, you know. Nice. And it was just like like made-up facts about something and just you know, create real facts. No, they were real good. facts. So people would send us like pictures of funny things that they saw. It, I, you know, it's kind of like what? Oh, Jay Leno. That's Jay Leno, Jay Leno, Jay Leno. You know how Jay Leno will like he'll like pull up a newspaper article, yeah, and it has like a funny typo in it or something. It's like that kind of stuff, like funny signs. Yeah. What, and also so, because it's a quick read, you could just read it while you're on, you know on the toilet or whatever. <laughs> Which is where most people read Lampoon, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Except that nobody really was able to do that in the late 90s. Ah, yeah. Um, where, where do you think comedy uh, is going? And, and, and this is what I mean. Like like these new – like Louis C.K., Mark Marin, um, Amy Schumer, you know, these, these are, you know – in a way, they're, they're they're very depressing comedians in some ways. I mean, they kind of really get on, you know, like like the worst parts of like you know our human existence, whatever, or living life. I think you know loneliness and sadness that accompanies that. Um, you know, I I don't think you know in like maybe ten years ago, I don't think there really was. I I don't think it was quite that sad and as dark. That wasn't really as mainstream as it is now. Um, and maybe you can maybe you disagree, but I think. They're, they're, we're kind of shifting out of that, though. I think, I think I can see kind of in the next year or two, these comedians have kind of like people are kind of getting a little tired of being that sad, and they want someone maybe to pick them up. Um, so I don't. know. Do you see kind of like that shifting in comedy kind of happening over time, or do you think it's not really you know, tied to anything? It just depends on how funny a comedian is at the time. And yeah, it's really hard to like identify trends in stand-up because a lot of it depends on where you're seeing the stand-up if you're seeing stand-up in like a large club that seats you know like say like a thousand people yeah um the comedy is going to be different than if you're just going to a to a tiny club like the comedy studio in in uh, harvard square or something like that where you're actually going to see like fresher up-and-coming comics uh, you know, versus more established comedians. I don't. I don't know where comedy's at right now. I know you know Louis C.K. is sort of leading the pack with his like self-loathing kind of uh, yeah. comedy about getting old and the the miseries of life and so forth and the horrors of having children and all that's true. But and for a while it seemed like um, back when Eugene was sort of getting big, that like absurdist comedy was getting big and more meta comedy, but that seems to have sort of gone away as well. I really, I really don't have a good answer for like where it's going right now. Well, I'd say Louis, I mean, Amy Schumer is huge. You know, I'd say she's probably one of the biggest stars right now. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. It's great to see a, a, you know, and she, she got a lot of her stuff from Sarah Silverman. You know, and then you can just trace it back. But uh, it's great to see comedians doing these sort of edgy, especially, you know. Well, um, what advice would you give uh, to any young kind of startup, you know, comedians that are either doing stand up or maybe they're, you know, producing content for, you know, YouTube? 
Um, you know, what advice would you offer with your years of comedic wisdom? Yeah, I don't have a lot of wisdom around creating <laughs> stuff for YouTube, but uh, in terms of just performing stand-up, I would say just try to get out there as often as you can and in as many uh, different kinds of venues as you can. Um, when I was in LA, I would do stand-up wherever. There was a laundromat show that I did, and now here in Boston, there's like a naked show that I'll do. And um, just that whenever you put yourself in a in a, a new sort of foreign environment and you get yourself out of your element, um, it it helps you grow as a comedian. Whenever you have to deal with like a a crowd that's not receptive or that's angry, and you have to you know battle your way through your set which every comedian has done at some point it it helps you grow stay true to yourself you know be yourself don't try to be somebody that you're not unless your shtick is um to create this persona Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that you have a specific persona that that's done well a lot of times you can develop a persona um over time as you do your act, you, you figure out what works and what doesn't, and then your persona kind of develops that way organically. Yeah. Um, I, my last question, um, I, we, we talked about Donald Trump and like how funny that might be if he you know, eventually stays in the race. Um, what, what do you think about did, – did you happen to see Larry David's impersonation of, uh, of Bernie Sanders by chance? Oh, yeah. It was pitch perfect, right? Yeah. I, I thought it was great. So he'll probably have a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I not think that he does, not that he needs it. I I know, I know. It's kind of like something he's just doing. He absolutely doesn't even need the money or anything, right? He's just doing it surely for like his own enjoyment. It seems, right? I I, I think. I mean, it seemed like he was up there only out of his own volition and only because he wanted to be. Probably. I mean, he would be doing that if it if it gave him nothing. He would do it just for the sheer pleasure of doing that role. It seemed. Oh, definitely. I think he's also a big Bernie supporter. So I think there's a it. It helps his cause politically and, you know, comedically. Yeah. Do you have any prediction? I mean, do, between Hillary and Bernie, do you think who, who might have the edge, you know, over uh, the next few months? I, I don't. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. It's It seems like the media is more, is pushing Hillary a lot more and they're behind. I think they're a little nervous about what would happen. Yeah. With you, Bernie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I think the more that he's gotten close in Iowa, um, I've really seen the media kind of pull back and kind of say, question Bernie, question his campaign and kind of say, hey, this guy, he's not really doing a serious campaign. You know, is now he just kind of like the dog who caught the post truck, you know, and he's just kind of not sure what to do with it. You know, they're trying to like diminish him as much as they can. Yeah, and um, I feel like as a result, it's kind of hard to tell how how big his support really is. Yeah, I, I think he's got pretty strong support, and he's got a lot of people like volunteering um, on the ground. Um, you know, kind of similar to what Obama did in two thousand eight. Maybe maybe not quite yeah. as much of the uh, kind of celebrity cool appeal that Obama brought to it, but a lot of like the the motivation to get out there to to help change something that. You know, to kind of fight the power that, that the powers that be sort of feeling. I, that's my take on it, anyways. I agree. Um, hey, well, Steve, it's been great talking to you. And um, okay. cool, sounds great. Thanks a lot, Mark. All right, man. Great have a good, talk with you. Have a good weekend. Bye bye.